This is a conspiracy channel. Tape 1. Welcome to the Hush Channel. The Andes is the longest continental mountain range in the world, forming a continuous highland along the western coastline of South America, extending from north to south through seven South American countries, Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina. The Andean mountain range serves as the highest mountain range in the world outside of those in Asia. Its range is the southeasternmost portion of the Ring of Fire, meaning there are an estimated 150 to 160 active volcanoes in what is called the Andean Volcanic Belt. Its environment is not suitable for the weak. The reduced air pressure and lack of oxygen found higher up in the Andes will cause those who are unaccustomed to such conditions to feel a variety of symptoms such as lightheadedness, extreme fatigue, nausea, headaches, and shortness of breath. Needless to say, one would definitely want to go into the region's wilderness prepared and with tact, or not at all. But what happens when such choices are removed? On October 12th of 1972, a four-year-old Uragan Air Force twin turboprop aircraft named the Fairchild was chartered by members of the Old Christians Club Rugby Union Team from Montevideo, Uruguay to fly them and 10 friends and family members to Santiago, Chile, where they were scheduled to play against the Old Boys English Rugby Club. On board were 40 passengers and 5 crew members, including Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradas, an experienced Air Force pilot with 5,017 flying hours under his belt, co-piloted by Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Laguara. Pilot Ferradas had flown a across the Andes 29 times previously already. On this flight, he was training Lagara. At the last minute, a seat opened up due to a cancellation. So a woman named Grazilia Mariani bought the seat in order to attend her oldest daughter's wedding. On October 12th, the aircraft departed Carrasco International Airport. However, a storm front over the Andes forced them to stop overnight in Mendoza, Argentina. Despite there being a direct route from Mendoza to Santiago by going 120 miles west, the height of the Andes required the plane be at an altitude of 25 to 26,000 feet, which was too close to the Fairchild's maximum operational ceiling of 28,000 feet, and it was already at maximum capacity. So the pilots decided to avoid the mountains and fly a longer 370-mile, 90-minute U-shaped route from Mendoza south to Malagru, and then fly a course south to the pass of Planchon. The Planchon Petora volcano systems extend in a north-south direction along the border of Argentina and Chile. The pass through these volcano systems is the pass of Planchon, where the aircraft could safely clear the Andes. By the next morning of Friday, October 13th, the weather over the Andes had not improved in the least. However, changes were expected by the early afternoon. So Colonel Ferrados and co-pilot Lieutenant Colonel Lagarder waited until 2.18 p.m. to take off from Mendoza via the planned route. Approximately an hour later, Colonel Ferradas notified air controllers that he was flying over the pass of Planchon, and shortly afterwards, he radioed in that he had reached Curico, Chile, which is 110 miles south of their final destination of Santiago, Chile. The problem was that he had no idea that he had no idea where they were actually located. Shortly afterwards, the Chilean control tower lost contact with the Fairchild completely. The Fairchild was not in Curico, Chile. No, it was not even in the air. The Fairchild had crashed in the Andes. And if that's not bad enough, it was not just anywhere in the Andes. It was in its most inaccessible region. 
It so happened that as they were flying through the Andes, the weather was, of course, still amiss. Clouds obscured the mountains, leading the pilots to report to flying strictly under instrumental meteorological conditions at an altitude of 18,000 feet. They could not visually confirm their location. When Ferradas reported his location, incorrectly albeit, he was relying on the Fairchild's VORDME radio navigation beacon which displayed to Ferradas a digital reading of the distance to the nearest radio beacon, which at that time was Curico, but that was not his current position. They were in the Planchon Pass, and the Fairchild still had 37 to 41 miles before reaching Curico at 3.21 p.m., just shortly after passing through the Planchon Pass, co-pilot Lagarda contacted Santiago air traffic controllers, notifying them that he expected to reach Curico within a minute. The flight time from the pass to Curico is typically 11 minutes. However, only three minutes had passed before the Fairchild was requesting permission from air traffic control to descend. The controller in Santiago Santiago was unaware that the Fairchild was not near Santiago nor Curico, but over the Andes, and so granted permission to descend 11,500 feet. As the Fairchild descended, severe turbulence tossed the aircraft up and down. Not only did they descend in the improper location, but they descended and hit a downdraft, and so the plane appeared to literally be falling unhinged from the clouds. Inside, the players joked about the turbulence. It was never fun and always a bit scary. Typical. Nobody ever really gets used to it, but it is what it is. Upon looking out the window, however, fear began to sweep through them as some of them began to notice how dangerously close the mountain was becoming. Some were thinking it was just a part of the flight. Initially, that is. But the distance kept closing, and fear jumped in. And it became obvious that this was not typical. Everything was not okay. Every flight passenger's worst nightmare was about to become their very own reality right then and right there. And there was no way of escaping this. The pilots noticed too little too late and last minute applied maximum power in an attempt to gain altitude and stabilize the plane. However, this only made things worse as now the Fairchild was nearly vertical to the mountain range and began to stall and shake as it was not built to handle such speed and position. The left wing was struck first, getting torn off by the mountainside. One of the propellers slicing through the fuselage, which is the main body of the aircraft. This is when about two passengers, Daniel Shaw and Carlos Valiz, fell out of the open rear of the fuselage. The front portion of the fuselage, however, flew straight through the air before sliding 2,379 feet down a very steep glacier at the speed of 220 miles per hour. The fuselage collided with a snowbank and its seats were thus torn from its base and thrown about. Upon impact, Dr. Francisco Nicola, his wife Esther Nicola, Eugenia Parado, and medical student Fernando Vasquez, four passengers, died immediately as their seats ripped from its anchors and hurled them to the front of the plane at great speeds. Carlos Valida, one of the two passengers who fell out of the open rear of the fuselage, survived his fall, yes, but stumbled down the snow-covered glacier, plummeting deep into the snow and was then beheaded, asphyxiated. Pilot Ferratus was crushed and killed immediately upon impact as the nose gear compressed the instrument panel against his chest, forcing his entire head out of the window. Co-pilot Lagarda was critically injured and trapped in the crushed cockpit. It was so bad that he begged one of the passengers to shoot him with his very own pistol, but the passenger declined. All in all, 33 remained alive, many seriously and critically injured. Medical students on board, Canessa and Gustavo, 
and Zerbino acted very quickly to assess the severity of the survivors' wounds and treated those that they could help the most. One passenger, Nando Parado, had his skull fracture and remained in a coma for three days. Enrique Platero had a piece of metal stuck in his abdomen that, when removed, brought a few inches of intestine with it. But he immediately began helping others despite this. Meanwhile, another passenger, Arturo Nagaro, legs were broken in several places. Seven passengers were missing and later confirmed dead. Law student Gaston Costamal, veterinary student Alio Huni, agronomy student Guido Magri, flight attendant Joaquin Ramirez, navigator Ramon Martinez, cattle rancher Daniel Shaw, and prep student Carlos Valida. 33 survivors remained. The Chilean Search and Rescue, or SARS, was notified within the hour that the Fairchild was missing. Four planes were sent out to search from that afternoon until dark. By 6 p.m., news of the incident had reached the media. Chilean SARS listened via radio and concluded the Fairchild had unfortunately crashed in one of the most remote and inaccessible areas of the Andean mountain range. It was practically mission impossible. As for the remaining survivors of the 13,000-foot crash, five more died that first night, including the co-pilot Lieutenant Colonel Laguara, Francisco Abal, Felipe Macarian, Julio Martinez Lamas, and Graziella Mariani, who had purchased a spot on the plane at the last minute to get to her oldest daughter's wedding. There are now a total of 28 survivors. The Andes Rescue Group of Chile, or CSA, was called for aid. And the next day, 11 aircraft from Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay were sent out in search of signs and survivors of the crash. Meanwhile, down at Ground Zero, survivors were attempting to write out an SOS on the roof of the aircraft using lipstick scavenged from the luggage. But they soon found that they simply did not have enough lipstick to make the letters visible from the air. A large cross was then etched in the snow. But all efforts were fruitless and went unseen by the three aircraft the survivors did see flying overhead. On October 16th, three days after the crash, Nando Parado, who had fractured his skull, woke up from his coma. Unfortunately, to the news that his mother, Eugenia Dolge Dog de Parado, had died. And his 19-year-old sister, Susanna Parado, was severely injured. On October 21st, eight days after the Fairchild's plummet, after 142 hours and 30 minutes, invested by search and rescue teams, search efforts were canceled. It had been concluded that there was no hope. The best they believed they could wish for was the recovery of the passengers' bodies that next summer, when the snow would finally melt. Broken seats and other debris was removed from the aircraft to close off the open end of the fuselage as the passengers did what they could to create a sustainable shelter for all remaining 28. One passenger, Fetal Strach, devised a way to obtain water by using sheet metal removed from under the belly of the seats and placing snow on them that would drip into empty wine bottles. To prevent snow blindness, sunglasses were made using the sun visors in the pilot's cab, along with wire and bra scraps. And because the seat covers were partially made of wool, it was used for garments and shoes to protect against the cold. The captain of the rugby team, Marcelo Perez, then assumed position as the leader of the survivors. Nando Parado's efforts to keep his sister Susanna alive failed as she succumbed to her injuries eight days after the crash. That October 21st, the same day, search and rescue teams gave up on finding the passengers. 
There were now 27 remaining passengers. They were not in the least, not even remotely, biologically equipped for such temperatures as all of them had always lived near the sea. A lot of them had never even seen snow nor experienced high altitudes previously. They lacked medical supplies. There was not enough proper clothing, equipment, nor food, and only three sunglasses had been constructed to prevent snow blindness. As for food, there was very, very little. Eight chocolate bars, a tin of mussels, three small jars of jam, a tin of almonds, a few dates, candies, dried plums, and several bottles of wine. All this was rationed out to each survivor in small amounts in order to allow their simple supply to last as long as possible. To put this into perspective, Nando Parado ate one single chocolate-covered peanut over the course of three days. There was, however, a small transistor radio found jammed between the seats of the aircraft and a passenger named Roy Harley had managed to improvise a very long antenna made using the plane's electrical cable. This was how on the 11th day, he heard that the search for them had been canceled and relayed the news to the rest of the team. In Pierce Paul Reed's book, Alive, the story of the Andes survivors, this moment is narrated as follows. The others who had clustered around Roy, upon hearing the news, began to sob and pray, all except Nando Parado, who looked calmly up at the mountains which rose to the west. Gustavo, Coco, Nikolic came out of the aircraft and, seeing their faces, knew what they had heard. Nikolic climbed through the hole in the wall of suitcases and rugby shirts, crouched at the mouth of the dim tunnel, and looked at the mournful faces which were turned towards him. Hey boys, he shouted. There's some good news. We just heard on the radio. They've called off the search. Inside the crowded aircraft there was silence. As the hopelessness of their predicament enveloped them, they wept. Why the hell is that good news? Paez shouted angrily at Nikolic. Because it means, Nikolic said, that we're going to get out of here on our own. The courage of this one boy prevented a flood of total despair. However motivated they were to survive, reality had to be accepted. The reality is that one of the worst necessities to lack is food. And even with the strict rationing, their food stock dwindled very rapidly. Given the habitation they were in, there was no natural vegetation, nor animals on the glacier, nor the nearby snow-covered mountain. After a week, all of the food was gone and the group soon began resorting to eating parts of the plane, such as the cotton and the leather inside the seats, which made them sick rather fast. Their bodies soon began to eat themselves. Rather rapidly, they realized that they were left with only one option. Our common goal was to survive, but what we lacked was food. We had long since run out of the meager pickings we'd found on the plain, and there was no vegetation or animal life to be found. After just a few days, we were feeling the sensation of our own bodies consuming themselves just to remain alive. Before long, we would become too weak to recover from starvation. We knew the answer, but it was too terrible to contemplate. The bodies of our friends and teammates, preserved outside in the snow and ice, contained vital, life-giving protein that could help us survive. But could we do it? For a long time, we agonized. I went out in the snow and prayed to God for guidance. Without his consent, I felt I would be violating the memory of my friends, that I would be stealing their souls. We wondered whether we were going mad even to contemplate such a thing. Had we turned into brute savages? 
Or was this the only sane thing to do? Truly, we were pushing the limits of our fear. These are the words of Roberto Canessa. Collectively, the group got their food supply by eating the flesh of the bodies of their dead comrades who had once been close friends, relatives, and classmates of theirs. Roberto would use the broken glass from the fear child's windshield as a cutting tool. He set the example of consuming the bodies for the others by swallowing the first matchstick-sized strip of frozen flesh. The others would later follow suit. And the next day, more survivors ate the flesh of their dearly departed friends. Few refused. Others simply could not keep it down. Nando Pararo protected the corpses of his mom and sister from being eaten. As for the other bodies, the survivors dried their flesh in the sun in order to make them more palatable. Initially, they could only consume the skin, muscle, and fat. But when that supply ended, they began to devour hearts, lungs, and even brains. The last of the survivors to give into such cannibalism was Javier Methal and his wife, Liliana, who had strong religious convictions. These survivors were all Roman Catholic. Their last resort of a survival tactic in cannibalism thus instilled fears of eternal damnation. Some rationalized this act by thinking of it like the Eucharist, also commonly known as the Holy Communion and the Lord's Supper, in which Christians symbolically consume the body of Christ by consuming bread and wine. The bread represents the body of Christ, and the wine represents the blood of his covenant, which is poured out for many. Others turned to John 15, 13. No man hath greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The 27 vowed that should they survive, the details involving cannibalism should only be shared in private and with their families. As things could seemingly not get any worse, the negative 30 degree temperatures and extremely high altitude brought on another issue the night of October 29th, just 17 days after the crash. While the passengers slept, an avalanche struck the aircraft, filling the fuselage and killing eight of the survivors. Aircraft mechanic Sergeant Carlos Roque, Daniel Masmons, Juan Carlos Menendez, veterinary student Gustavo Coco Nikolic, farming student Enrique Platero, medical student Diego Storm, wife of survivor Javier Methal, nurse and motherly figure of the survivor group Liliana Navarro Petroglia de Methal, and rugby team captain and leader of the survivor group Marcelo Perez. 19 survivors now remained. After such a big loss, the group felt like they were at the end of their wits. The fuselage, their shelter, was now buried, and those who had survived began to run out of air. Thinking quick, Nando Parado found a metal pole from the luggage racks and was able to poke a hole in the fuselage roof, which provided ventilation. On the morning of October 21st, the survivors, with great difficulty, began to dig a tunnel from the cockpit to the surface. In finding relief, seeing they were breaking the surface, they were instantly faced with the harsh realization that there was a furious blizzard outside, forcing them back into the fuselage. For three days, the remaining 19 were trapped in the cramped space of what was left of the fuselage with the corpses of their newly deceased friends, family, and loved ones. By the third day being stuck inside the fuselage, they had no choice but to start devouring them. The flesh, soft, greasy, 
streaked with blood and bits of wet gristle, causing a gagging initial reaction when placed inside their mouths. With Marcelo Perez dead, three cousins assumed leadership. Fido Strach, Daniel Fernandez, and Eduardo Fernandez. They harvested the flesh of the deceased and distributed it evenly to the others. A few of the survivors began to believe that their best bet of survival would be to climb over the mountains and search for help due to the late co-pilot Lagarde's dying statement that the aircraft had passed Curico. Due to this, the group believed the Chilean countryside was only a few paces to the west. In actuality, they were more than 55 miles to its east and deep in the Andes. As temperatures rose, the snow that once buried them subsided and the 19 would make several small expeditions within the immediate vicinity of the Fairchild remnants. However, this was cut short as they ran into issues such as altitude sickness, dehydration, snow blindness, malnourishment, and extreme cold during the nights, all of which made traveling any significant distance nearly impossible. Instead, it was decided that only a few members should go out and seek help. With Nando Parado and Antonio Vizentin being the strongest of the men, they were selected alongside Roberto Canessa, and so they were given larger rations of food and the warmest clothes. Daily manual labor was divided throughout the remaining survivors to build their strength. On the 15th of November, day 34, after several hours of walking east, the trio found the largely intact tail section of the aircraft containing a galley about one mile east and downhill of the fuselage. Inside and nearby, they found luggage containing a box of chocolates, three meat patties, a bottle of rum, cigarettes, extra clothes, comic books, and a little medicine. They also found the aircraft's two-way radio. The group decided to camp that night inside the tail section. They built a fire and stayed up late reading comic books. They continued east the next morning. On the second night of the expedition, which was their first night outside sleeping, they nearly froze to death. After some debate the next morning, they decided it would be easier to return to the tail, remove the aircraft's batteries, and take them back to the fuselage as to power up the radio and make an SOS call to Santiago for help. Upon returning to the tail, however, the trio found that the 53-pound batteries were too heavy to take back to the fuselage, which laid uphill from the tail section. They decided instead it would be more effective to return to the fuselage, disconnect the radio system from the aircraft's frame, then take it back to the tail, and then connect it to the batteries. One of the team members, Roy Harley, was an amateur electronics enthusiast and they recruited his help in this endeavor. Unknown to any of the team members at that time, the aircraft's electrical system used 115 volts AC, while the battery they had located produced 24 volts DC, making the plan futile from the beginning. After several days of trying to make the radio work, they just gave up and returned to the fuselage with the knowledge that they would have to climb out of the mountains if they were to have any hope of being rescued. On the return trip, they were struck by a blizzard. It was here when Roy Harley just gave up and he wanted to die. Manando Parado would not allow him to give up. Enough death had occurred, and if it could be prevented, Nando would prevent another. His motivation encouraged Harley's survival. It was now apparent that the only way out was to climb over the mountains to the west. They also realized that unless they found a way to survive the freezing temperature of the nights, a trek was impossible. The survivors who had found the rear of the fuselage came up with an idea to use insulation from the rear of the fuselage, copper wire, and waterproof fabric that covered the air conditioning of the plane to fashion a sleeping bag. 
The second challenge would be to protect ourselves from exposure, especially after sundown. At this time of year, we could expect daytime temperatures well above freezing, but the nights were still cold enough to kill us, and we knew now that we couldn't expect to find shelter on the open slopes. We needed a way to survive the long nights without freezing, and the quilted bats of insulation we taken from the tail section gave us our solution. As we brainstormed about the trip, we realized we could sew the patches together to create a large warm quilt. Then we realized that by folding the quilt in half and stitching the seams together, we could create an insulated sleeping bag large enough for all three expeditionaries to sleep in. With the warmth of three bodies trapped by the insulating cloth, we might be able to weather the coldest nights. Carlitos, paused, took on the challenge. His mother had taught him to sew when he was a boy, and with the needles and thread from the sewing kit found in his mother's cosmetic case, he began to work. To speed the progress, Carlitos taught others to sew, and we all took our turns. Kosh, Inchiate, Gustavo, Zerbino, and Fito, Strouch, turned out to be our best and fastest tailors. On November 15th, Arturo Nogaro died, and three days later, Raphael Echevarin died, both from gangrene due to their infected wounds. Numa Turcati, whose extreme repulsion for eating the flesh of the deceased dramatically accelerated his physical decline. He would die after the sleeping bag was completed, with his body only weighing 55 pounds December 11th, the 60th day since the initial crash. The remaining 16 knew that they too would meet the same fate if they did not find help and fast. There was some relief in hearing over the transistor radio that the Uregan Air Force resumed their search. Canessa was still hesitant about going out. While the others didn't encourage Nando Parado, none would volunteer to go with him. Initially that is. Nando Parado finally persuaded Roberto Canessa to set out, and they were joined by Vicentin. The three men took to the mountain on December 12th, lacking mountaineering gear of any sort. They began to climb the glacier at 11,710 feet on to 15,320 feet, trekking for over 10 days at an average of 38 miles to seek help. They only had a three-day supply of human flesh. Nando Parado wore three pairs of jeans and three sweaters over a polo shirt. He wore four pairs of socks wrapped in a plastic shopping bag. They had no technical gear, nor map, nor compass, and zero climate experience. Instead of climbing the ridge to the west, which was somewhat lower than the peak they were on, they climbed straight up the steep mountain. They incorrectly believed that they would reach this peak in one day. Parado took the lead and the other two often had to remind him to slow down, although the thin oxygen poor air did make it difficult for all three of them. During part of the climb, they sank up to their hips in snow, which had been softened by the summer sun. It was bitterly cold, but the sleeping bag allowed them to live through the nights. In the documentary film, Stranded, Canessa describes how on the first night during the ascent, they had difficulty finding a place to put down the sleeping bag. They stole blew fiercely and they finally found a spot on a ledge of rock on the edge of an abyss. Canessa said it was the worst night of his entire life. The climb was very slow. The survivors at the fuselage watched him climb for three days. On the second day, Canessa thought he saw a road to the east and tried to persuade Parado to head in that direction. Parado disagreed and they argued without reaching a decision. On the third morning of the trek, Canessa stayed at their camp. Vicentin and Parado reached the base of a near vertical wall more than 300 feet tall and key in snow and ice. Parado was determined to hike out or die trying. He used a stick from his pack to carve steps into the wall. He gained the summit of the 15,260 foot high peak before Byzantine. Thinking he would see the green valleys of Chile to the west, he was stunned to see a vast array of mountain peaks in every direction instead. They had climbed a mountain on the border of Argentina and Chile, meaning 
the trekkers were still miles from the green valleys of Chile. But Zentin and Parado rejoined Canessa where they had slept the night before. At sunset, while sipping cognac that they had found in the teal section, Parado asked Roberto if he could imagine how beautiful this would all be if they were not dead men. The next morning, the three men could see the hike was going to take much longer than they originally planned. They were running out of food, so Vizentin agreed to return to the crash site. The return was entirely downhill, and using an aircraft seat as a makeshift sleigh, he returned to the crash site in one hour. Parado and Canessa took three hours to climb the rest of the summit. When Canessa reached the top and saw nothing but snow-capped mountains for what seemed like miles around them, his first thought was that they were dead. Parado saw two smaller peaks on the western horizon that were not covered in snow. A valley at the base of the mountain they stood on wound its way towards the peaks. Parado was sure that this was their way out of the mountains. He refused to give up hope. Canessa agreed to go west. Only much later did Canessa learn that the road that he had seen earlier to the east would have gotten them to rescue much sooner and much easier. While on the summit, Parado told Canessa that while they may be walking to their deaths, he would rather walk and meet his death than to wait for it to come to him. To which Canessa agreed. You and I are friends, Nando. We have been through so much. Now let's go die together. These were the words of Roberto Canessa to Nando Parado before the pair followed the ridge towards the valley, descending a large distance. Parado and Canessa hiked for several more days. First, they were able to reach the narrow valley that Parado had seen on the top of the mountain. It was here where they found the source of the San Jose River, leading to Portillo River, which meets Azufre River at Maintenance. They followed the river and reached the snow line. Gradually, there appeared more and more signs of human presence. First, some evidence of camping, and finally, on the ninth day, some cows. When they rested that evening, they were very tired, and Canessa seemed unable to proceed any further. As the men gathered wood to build a fire, one of them saw three men on horseback at the other side of the river. Parado called out to them, but the noise of the river made it impossible to communicate. One of the men from across the river saw Parado and Canessa and shouted to them that he would be back the next day. And the next day, he did return. He scribbled a note, attached it, and a pencil to a rock with some string, and threw the message across the river. To which Parado replied the following. I come from a plain that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. We have been walking for 10 days. I have a wounded friend up there. In the plane there are still 14 injured people. We have to get out from here quickly and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come to fetch us? Please, we cannot even walk. Where are we? Sergio Catalan, a Chilean muleteer, read the note and gave them a sign that he understood. Catalan talked with the other two men and one of them remembered that just several weeks before Carlos Paez's father had asked them if they had heard about the Andes plane crash. The muleteers could not imagine that anybody could still be alive. Catalan threw bread to the men from across the river. He then rode on horseback westward for 10 hours just to bring help. During the trip he saw another muleteer on the south side of the Azufre River and asked him to reach the men and to bring them to Los maintenance chili. Then he followed the river to its junction with the Tingaririca River. After crossing a bridge, he was able to reach the narrow route that linked the village of Puente Negro to the holiday resort of Termas del Flaco. Here, he was able to stop a truck and reach the police station at Puente Negro. They relayed the news of the survivors to the Army Command in San Fernando, Chile, who contacted the Army in Santiago. Meanwhile, Parado and Canessa were brought on horseback to Los Maintenance de Curico, where they were fed and allowed to rest. Finally, they had hiked about 24 miles over 10 days. Since the plane crash, Canessa had lost almost half of his entire body weight. 
weighing in at about 97 pounds at the time of rescue. When the news broke out that people had survived the crash of the Uruguayan Flight 571, the story of the passenger survival after 72 days drew international attention. A flood of international reporters began walking several miles along the route from Puente Negro to Termas del Flaco. The reporters clamored to interview Parado and Canessa about the crash and their survival ordeal. The Chilean Air Force provided three Bell UH-1 helicopters to assist with the rescue. They flew in heavy cloud under instrument conditions to Las Metinas de Curico, where the Army interviewed Parado and Canessa. When the fog lifted at about noon, Parado volunteered to lead the helicopters to the crash site. He had brought the pilot's flight chart and guided the helicopters up the mountain to the location of the remaining survivors. One helicopter remained behind in reserve. The pilots were astounded at the difficult terrain the two men had crossed in order to reach help. On the afternoon of the 22nd of December 1972, the two helicopters carrying search and rescue personnel reached the survivors. The steep terrain only permitted the pilot to touch down with a single skid. Due to the altitude and weight limits, the two helicopters were able to only take half of the survivors. Four members of the search and rescue team volunteered to stay with the seven survivors remaining on the mountain. The survivors slept a final night in the fuselage with the search and rescue party. The second flight of helicopters arrived the following morning at daybreak. They carried the remaining survivors to hospitals in Santiago for evaluation. They were treated for a variety of conditions, including altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, broken bones, scurvy, and malnutrition. The last remaining survivors were rescued on the 23rd of December 1972, more than two months after the crash. Under normal circumstances, the search and rescue team would have brought back the remains of the dead for burial. However, given the circumstances, including that the bodies were in Argentina, the Chilean rescuers left the bodies at the site until authorities could make the necessary decisions. The Chilean military photographed the bodies and mapped the area. Ironically, the survivors' crash site had not been far from Hotel Terminus El Sosnito, an abandoned resort and hot springs, which would have provided them limited shelter. The 16 survivors were medical student Roberto Canessa, Nando Parado, Carlos Paez Rodriguez, economic student Jose Pedro Algorta, Alfredo Pancho Delgado, Daniel Fernandez, Roberto Bobby Francois, Roy Harley, Jose Coche, Luis Enciarte, Alvaro Mangino, Javier Metal, Ramon Sabello, Aldolfo Fito Strach, Eduardo Strach, Antonio Tintin Vizentin, and medical student Gustavo Zerbino. Out of the initial 45 that boarded the Fairchild, only 16 survived. Upon being rescued, the survivors' initial statements about survival detailed that they had eaten some cheese and other foods they had carried with them, and then local plants and herbs. However, rumors began circulating in Montevideo immediately after the rescue that the survivors had killed some of the others for food. On the 23rd of December 1972, news reports of cannibalism were published worldwide, except in Uruguay. On December 26, two pictures taken by members of Cuerpo de Socorro and Dino, the Andean Relief Corps, revealed that of a half-eaten human leg, which was printed out on the front page of two Chilean newspapers, El Mercurio and La Tercera de La Hora, whose reports confirmed that all survivors were resorted to cannibalism. On December 28th of 1972, the survivors held a press conference 
at Stella Maurice College in Montevideo where they recounted the events of the past 72 days. Survivor Alfredo Delgado spoke for the survivors, comparing their actions to that of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper, during which he gave his disciples the Eucharist. Regardless, the backlash was harsh, that is, until after they explained the pact that the survivors had made to sacrifice their flesh if they died in order to help the others survive. The outcry diminished and the families were more understanding. A Catholic priest heard the survivors' confessions and told them that they were not damned for cannibalism, given the extreme nature of their survival situation. The news of their survival and the actions required to live drew worldwide attention and grew into a media circus. The authorities and the victims' families decided to bury the remains near the site of the crash in a common grave. Thirteen bodies were untouched, while another 15 were mostly skeletal. Twelve men and a Chilean priest were transported to the crash site on the 18th of January, 1973. Family members were not allowed to attend. They dug a grave about a fourth to a half mile from the aircraft fuselage at a site they thought was safe from avalanches. Close to the grave, they built a simple stone altar and staked an orange iron cross on it. They placed a plaque on the pile of rocks and inscribed the following the world to its uruguayan brothers close oh god to you they doused the remains of the fuselage in gasoline and set it alight eduardo strach later mentioned in his book out of the silence that the bottom half of the fuselage which was covered in snow was still untouched by the fire in his first 1995 visit the father of one victim had received word from a survivor that his son wished to be buried at home unable to obtain official permission to retrieve his son's body ricardo eshavarin mounted an expedition on his own with hired guides he had prearranged with the priest who had buried his son to mark the bag containing his son's remains upon his return to the abandoned hotel terminus with his son's remains he was a arrested for grave robbing. A federal judge and the local mayor intervened to obtain his release and Eshavarin later obtained legal permission to bury his son. As for the 16 survivors in 2022, with the exception of Javier Methov, who much later died, they are all still alive and all got together on the 50th anniversary of the October 13th crash to remember their beloved and departed 31 friends, family, and crew members. End of tape one.